for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, a seven-month pause on wind and solar development in Alberta came to an end today, March the 1st. The province uh, has laid out some new rules to guide future development, but we find out why there isn't much optimism within the industry itself about what the future is for what has been a renewable success story in Alberta until recently. We look into Ottawa's long-awaited pharmacare bill tabled yesterday. Diabetes and contraception will be the first two drug categories covered. It is ultimately meant to provide better and cheaper access to other medications for Canadians through a single-payer universal system as well. But will even this trial run into jurisdictional issues with the provinces such as Alberta and Quebec? And it won't be cheap, an estimated $1.5 billion a year. So is it a good first step and is it worth the money? But first, tributes to and stories about Brian Mulroney continue to be shared today across the political spectrum and beyond. The 84-year-old former Prime Minister passed away yesterday in Florida, surrounded by his family. We speak with longtime Conservative MP Peter McKay, who had a long personal relationship with Mulroney, and John Barrett, who first met Brian Mulroney as a teenager, and he shares his memories of times with the former Prime Minister as well. Let's begin tonight with the passing of Canada's 18th Prime Minister and the tributes and stories about Brian Mulroney continue to be shared today right across the political spectrum and far, far beyond. The 84-year-old, of course, passed away yesterday in Florida, surrounded by his family. Flags are at half-staff at federal buildings across the country tonight. They'll remain that way until sunset on the day of the former Prime Minister's state funeral. And the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, was in Sudbury earlier today and spoke of plans in the making to honour Brian Mulroney. I can confirm that obviously there will be a full state funeral for the former Prime Minister. Uh, we're working with the family closely to ensure that all of their uh, wishes are uh, are respected and that it be uh, the right and fitting uh, tribute to him. We will uh, be sharing uh, more details, of course, uh, in coming moments. There will, of course, be opportunities for Canadians to share their tributes to the former PM in the coming weeks as well. Those tributes, as mentioned, continue to pour in today from all corners. Here's how current Conservative leader Pierre Poliev described the only Conservative leader to win two consecutive majorities since John A. Macdonald. He was the son of an electrician who, despite those modest beginnings in a working-class community in Baie-Comeau, Quebec, rose to extraordinary heights in business before he even turned 40, he was the head of the Iron Ore Company, one of the greatest mining companies of all time. He then jumped into politics and won the biggest majority in Canadian history, later winning re-election. But it wasn't electoral success that defined his political career, it was what he did with it. And NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says he's been reflecting on what Mulroney did with that power, his contributions to Canada. He did have... Uh, significant contributions to Canada and there are things that we can agree with his work on environmentalism his work on fighting apartheid in South Africa and his work on trying to include Quebec these are things that are are notable and are things worthy of recognizing MP suspended sitting in the House of Commons today and will offer offer formal tributes to Mulroney on March the 18th. And tributes from outside the country as well. U.S. President Biden wrote, I got to know the Prime Minister when I served on the Senate Foreign Nation uh, Relations Committee. I saw firsthand his commitment to the friendship between our two nations. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky wrote, Ukrainians will always remember that Brian Mulroney's government was the first in the Western Hemisphere to recognize Ukraine's independence in 1991. This laid a solid foundation for Ukraine and Canada to continue continue uh, their true friendship. And South African President Cyril Ramaphosa offered deep condolences on the passing of a leader who holds a special place in South Africa's history. My next guest knew Brian Mulroney well. Their family is connected through politics for decades. As the new Conservative leader back in August of 1983, Mulroney won a by-election in the Nova Scotia riding of Central Nova. The next day, he told supporters in Ottawa that he would work for the welfare of his party and the country. We're going to work hard. Mila and I are here as servants of the party at all times. We will do our very best to honor your trust and your support. We commit ourselves to the welfare of the people of Canada, working with all of you to build a brand new country. Thank you. Now, the MP who stepped down to make way for Mulrooney to win that by-election 
was Elmer McKay. McKay would go on to win that riding again in the 1984 general election when Mulroney ran elsewhere, and he would serve in Mulroney's cabinet through his time in office from 1984 to 1993. That relationship between the two families would continue when Elmer's son, Peter McKay, a name you may recognize, entered politics in 1997. He too would go on to lead a much diminished progressive conservative party, but still lead the party nonetheless, and play a key role in the reunification of the conservative party. Uh, as his PCs and the Canadian Alliance merged in 2003. He would go on to serve in Stephen Harper's cabinet, including as Minister of National Defense, Minister of Foreign Affairs, and Justice Minister, uh, and uh, would continue to communicate and talk to Brian Mulroney over the years. Uh, And he joins me now, Peter McKay does, from Nova Scotia. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's a a poignant time, to be sure, Uh, really end of an era. It is, and an era that began as a teenager for you, because of course your father was a minister under Brian Mulroney, and he, uh, your father, stepped aside to let Brian Mulroney run and win and enter Parliament in 1983. So there's been a long connection between the Mulroneys and the McKays. That's right. I, I mean, like a lot of people who you know follow what their parents are doing, I, I guess I first met Mr. Mulroney when he came here to Central Nova as then leader of the Progressive Conservative Party in opposition and sought the seat, as you say, when my dad stepped aside and cleared the path for him to enter Parliament, uh, and then, of course, go on to win the election, the historic election in 1984, and become Prime Minister. That was a, uh, you know, a a massive uh, impression that it left on me, not one that uh, at the time ever, in my view, saw me following in my father's footsteps, but uh, certainly as a young person, watching him, his style, his campaigning, uh, that was really impressive, hardworking, uh, and had this you know star quality about him that drew people to him in that initial by-election. Yeah, tell me a bit about that because it was I remember when that when he ran in Central Nova, and you know he was although he had grown up in in Bay Como and his father uh, was was a machinist and so on, he seemed quite slick by 1983, and one didn't really know whether he had that common touch, whether he could relate to people outside of you know the boardrooms of Canada, and yet. He could. Well, he, he certainly could. And I think much of it is attributable to those really grassroots uh, upbringing that he had in, in Bay Como and uh, coming from a very modest family. But don't forget, Ben, he also had much of his formal education in Nova Scotia. He went right. to St. Effects University, uh, which was in or was part of Central Nova. He, you know, spent time in New Brunswick. He he really did have a, a humble and, and common touch and relatability that is sometimes now overlooked or it was played up, as was mentioned. He did have a very successful professional career in the law and, and working uh, as a labor lawyer and and, uh, and and having made a name for himself in business. But when he was here, you know, he rolled up his sleeves. Uh, I remember my father telling me uh, and Mr. Mulroney passing on this story as well, that my dad said to him day one, you know, look, uh, if you get up early every day, then you and you establish that reputation, then you can afford to sleep in on occasion. <laughs> That's a, what did your dad think of him? Because obviously they were close, right? I mean, they were close. Sometimes cabinet ministers can serve in governments where they're not particularly close to the leader, but it seemed like your father and, and, and Mr. Mulroney always had a pretty tight bond. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there there was a common history, of course, and they knew a lot of the same people. They, I think they shared a, a lot of the philosophy and vision of the Conservative Party and what they represented to the country, going back to really being the, you know, the party that unified the country. John Diefenbaker was a big influence in my father's life, and I know that's true of Mr. Mulroney as well. And and they they became close friends through politics, but it transcended that. I mean, my dad and Mr. Mulroney spoke regularly. I, I know that, and uh, I. I, I know he is feeling it. We spoke last night and again mm-hmm. today. And, you know, he made a, what I thought was a very sort of profound statement about Brian Mulroney, his friend, as he put it. Uh, we will not see his like again. And uh, that's an old Scottish expression. Indeed. Yeah, a, a man, of, I, you know, I always, we always think of, uh, of Brian Mulroney and his legacy and those who served served around him at the time. What What is it, I mean, when you went into politics, not long after your father uh, stepped away from politics, at the same time as Mr. Mulroney did, if I remember correctly, uh, your dad retired at the same time that Brian Mulroney stepped down as leader of the party. 
That's right. He uh, he had sort of been in and out of politics for well over 20 years and uh, and felt it was time to move on. And my, my dad, uh, you know, never lost contact with uh, with where he grew up and he lives on the farm where he was raised. Right. And I, I think that, you know, he, he kept up close contact with people like Brian Mulroney and uh, Don Mazinkowski. And there were a number of his cabinet colleagues who he formed a great affinity for. And I think that was somewhat unique. You know, he spoke often of Mr. Mulroney's ability to really raise the 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 motives and the and and the inspirational type of speeches that he would give in cabinet and reminding people that politics was a team sport first, and they they had to rely on and trust each other. And those were bonds that uh, that lasted well beyond their time in Ottawa. Yeah, it was remarkable because even as as you know the polls weren't looking great by 1993, and then you know things for for many reasons things were in trouble for the party that his cabinet had been so loyal to him, and and I think that's ex- what you describe is exactly why he earned that loyalty from those who that's had right. uh, surrounded him. That's exactly right, Ben. I remember you know a few people have repeated this in various iterations of the story, but my dad described it as you know being in the locker room at halftime at the the Grey Cup or or the Stanley Cup Finals, and and. Uh, Brian would wait for everybody else to speak, and then he would step up to the the microphone and remind them that, you know, all of their friends, all of their most important teammates were in the room, and they had to pull together, and uh, they would charge out of that cabinet room feeling very, you know, empowered and inspired to get back to work and uh, and respond to what the country was looking for. Peter McKay was the last leader of the federal progressive conservative party in this country. The longtime Nova Scotia MP served uh, in cabinet under Stephen Harper in many roles, including as Minister of Foreign Affairs. So, Peter, you enter politics in 1997 uh, in a progressive conservative party that is certainly weakened, but still important. Um, and you're there as as the merger comes together by 2003. I mean, this is a pivotal time, I guess, in conservative politics, maybe a little bit earlier than that, actually. What role did, did Brian Mulroney have in your political career and and when you were leader of the PCs? Well, friend, mentor, verifier uh, in many ways for decisions that I had to take. And when he endorsed the concept of the reunification, as I describe it, of the conservative movement in Canada, that had an enormous impact on people who were doubtful, progressive conservatives uh, predominantly. And uh, it was important. And I, I consulted with him quite regularly through that time as I did later when when we were back in government. And he always had a very open door, and I would dare say modern open mind, to the evolution of the Conservative Party. And, you know, that that bears itself out in the fact that he was an environmentalist and later described as Canada's greenest, greenest prime minister. He was a guy who looked over the horizon for where the country could and should be, saw its potential for greatness. I think that type of of leadership really is what anyone in public life aspires to. And you're not going to get everything right. And, you know, he certainly knew that, but he never gave up. I mean, he continued even, even after leaving politics to not seek out the ability to influence, but people came to him. They were drawn to him. They looked for his advice, but because his instincts, his political instincts, uh, based on a life around politics were really unmatched. Yeah. I, I, and it's interesting because I think Preston Manning has written something in the National Post in the last 24 hours. It sort of suggested that that uh, Mr. Mulroney's initial reaction to the reformist movement in, on the, in the West was, was a negative one. And then here we are, you know, a decade later, and, and he sort of reassessed what Canadian conservatism conservatism could look like. And that said a lot about, I think, about his, his, as you just put it, his ability to adapt and to look forward, not backward. Well, and he also was able to reach beyond, I, I would describe it as the party base. I mean, that's why he was able to form the biggest majority government in Canadian history. No small feat, to say the least. He, he also, I, I think, um, you know, wanted to do substantial big things that would cement the, the future for the country. Meech Lake and Charlottetown are, are sometimes described as failed initiatives, but Let's never forget what the intent was. It was to bring Quebec into the Constitution, where he was from in Quebec, and felt he felt passionately about that and, you know, risked a lot of political capital to try to make that happen. He also had a government, let's not forget, that included, and I mentioned 
Don Mazinkowski earlier, but Kim Campbell, uh, Joe Clark, both of whom were prime ministers. He he had a significant number of Western Canadian ministers in his government. And so I think he was confounded, uh, as were many, uh, about the West wants in. He he saw the West as in. And, mm-hmm. you know, some of the tensions that existed in the country perhaps were not really reflective, certainly, of what the Conservative government was trying to do. That the, They felt the West was part of what they were trying to do. Hence, they ended the, the National Energy Program. Right. Any last thoughts uh, on, on Brian Mulroney? I know so many people have said so much in the last 24 hours and so much of it so true. But but on a personal level, so many of the best stories are just about moments they had with, with Mr. Mulroney. What would yours be? Well, um, my last conversation with him, which was just earlier in the week, and I, um, I was reminded just again of his generosity. Uh, he had such a, a compassionate spirit. He really loved the country and wanted to put the country first and and gave much of himself, as have his family. And so that's the Brian Mulroney that I remember, a, a, a truly great Canadian, a man who left the country better than he found it when he entered public life. And uh, I think that the, the benefit of hindsight and looking at his policies and his contributions put him really in in the category of one of the greatest leaders we've ever had. Peter, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. Health Minister Mark Holland tabled that long-awaited bill yesterday in the House of Commons that is meant to pave the way for a national pharmacare program. Diabetes and contraception will be the first two drug categories covered. Uh, If Bill C-64 passes Parliament, which it should, Holland will then begin negotiating with the provinces and territories on a funding commitment that would cover the cost of providing those medications to people for free. It is ultimately, of course, meant to provide better and cheaper access to medicine to Canadians through a single-payer universal system for other medications as well. And the bill is a key element, obviously politically, uh, in in the Liberals' political pact with the NDP. Um, And Mark Holland acknowledge the work of the NDP in announcing the bill yesterday morning. Today is a giant step forward for our health system. It was made possible by two adversaries asking what we have in common rather than what separates us. Well, right now, Canada is the only country with a universal health care system that does not offer coverage for prescription drugs. Just over half of Canadians have access to an employer-sponsored plan. 10% purchase private plans of some sort. Another 20% are covered by government-sponsored plans that target specific groups, such as seniors or households on social assistance. But that leaves roughly one in five Canadians with no drug coverage at all. Now, there are hurdles to this plan, obviously, and this is a first step. There are jurisdictional issues. Health is under the auspices of the provinces, obviously, and provinces such as Alberta and Quebec have already signaled that they plan to opt out. And then there is the cost. The health minister was reluctant to talk money yesterday, but did eventually say it would be expected to cost about an estimated $1.5 billion annually, and that's subject to change. Joining me now is Aidan Hollis. He's a professor of economics at the University of Calgary. He's been looking into pharmacare for many years now. Aidan, thanks for your time tonight. My pleasure. That was so a good tell me, introduction. I mean, yeah, indeed, because it's a really interesting topic, and you've been looking into this for a very long time. I've been sort of reading, was reading some of your social media activity and some of what you've written in the past. What do you make of the first step here? It's an interesting first step, for sure. I mean, the the effort here is uh, going to be uh, really challenged with lots of opposition, um, and that's going to come from the provinces, which do say that they haven't been adequately consulted, even at this stage, and they're you know ready to say no. Uh, in, in the case of Alberta and uh, Quebec, um, you know, even without hearing any details of the plan. Um, so there's the provinces, they're going to be the private um, drug insurers, the, the, the companies that are already providing insurance to most Canadians through employ, employer-sponsored plans. Um, and they're all uh, kind of you know, objecting vociferously. Um, and then the, the interesting thing is this is really being pitched as a sort of a trial. And so they're looking at, for a couple of drugs, what if we run... Uh, you know, drug insurance just that, that covers from the beginning, like first dollar coverage, so you don't have to pay anything. And that's going to cover everyone, regardless of whether you already have insurance or not. But they're also running simultaneously an, another kind of program in, in PEI on a smaller scale, obviously, because of the, the province, 
where they're just looking at what happens if we fill in the gaps. And it's clear that the the Liberal government is really asking, um, can we just try this out on a manageable scale with a couple of drugs and compare it to what what we're doing in, in PEI and see what works best and what's manageable and what we can what we can make work with the provinces. It was interesting that they chose uh, uh, diabetes and contraception as the first two medications to look at. I, I mean, I think the numbers, and I hope I got them correct, but I think the numbers um, suggest that this is needed. I mean, there's been a lot of noise out there about how Canadians don't need this because they're all already covered, but the numbers suggest differently. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's uh, really not true that everyone's fully covered. So, you know, even if you're... In most provinces, right? If, if you're a senior and you are covered by, um, you know, the provincial drug program, you're still going to be paying um, a, a charge when you go to the pharmacy, or maybe for the, you know, the needles that you need or, or the syringes, whatever it is. Um, so for patients with diabetes, apparently it's something like 20% of people with diabetes are not really following the program that they should not taking the drugs that they should because of cost. And so when that happens, unfortunately, there are long-term consequences. So the claim of the health minister is that they're, they're, they're hoping for actual cost savings because if you can keep people out of hospital, um, you know, keep them from having to have a foot amputated because their diabetes has progressed, then there are potentially real substantial savings to be had. And that's not going to be for everyone, of course, but you just need to keep a few people out of hospital to make it worthwhile to run this program. On the contraception side, I I feel like it's more of a kind of, uh, uh, although this this is uh, important, of course, for for some patients. Um, It's also kind of, uh, it it meets a, a kind of a liberal um, kind of goals of, of particularly addressing maternal and child health. So right. I, think yeah. That, yeah, I think there's some political and also kind of economic and health issues all being addressed. On the jurisdictional, we'll look at some of the hurdles then. On the jurisdictional side, I mean, clearly Quebec seems like it's already, you know, Quebec has a long history of saying, just give us the money, don't tell us how to spend it. Um, Alberta may be a little bit less so, but still, what do you make of the jurisdictional battles? Because I do think the government may will come at this and say, why would you turn this down? Why would you turn down? I mean, of course, the provinces still want the money. They just don't want to be told how to spend it. But in this sense, if you're going to set up a, a national pharmacare program, it sort of goes without saying that you'll need to buy into the program, right? Um, it's true. So I think part of it is just, uh, you know, they don't want to, they don't want to be, uh, stuck with the thin end of the wedge here. They're worried that it could expand. I mean, but it's not going to be so easy for provinces like Alberta just to say, give us the money instead, because the usual condition for these kinds of transfers is that in order to get the money, you have to run a comparable program. And Alberta and Quebec don't run a comparable program where there is first dollar coverage for um, uh, diabetes products and and, and contraception. Mm -hmm. On the cost side, um, I think Mark Holland was pushed on how much it would cost broadly. And it was about $1.5 billion a year. I mean, we know that this will be expensive, period. If you want to launch something this ambitious, potentially the most ambitious thing we've seen since Medicare, to some extent, uh, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, dental care is a pretty big one, too. True enough, true enough. Um, I I mean, I think on the cost side, on the one hand, obviously this does transfer costs to the federal government. But it's not as if those costs aren't already being borne by Canadians, right? If you're getting your diabetes care and you're getting the access to contraception that you need, someone's paying for it. You know, it's either you or your insurer or somebody in the provinces. So it's it's not as if this is all like net new costs. It's just it's moving the costs around, and it, it's going to you know make a change in terms of who's who's paying for it. It's one of the arguments that's come up quite often is is sort of the idea that when the government moves into a space, then others clear out of it, and that this might in fact impact people who already have insurance in a negative way. I know that's the that's the that's the argument that's put forth by those who who oppose this. How much truth is there to that, or what are the nuances around that argument? I mean, I, I think uh, the the existing um, players who are providing insurance for these uh, products are obviously 
won't have to provide insurance for it. So this will reduce costs for uh, private, you know, third-party health insurers and for the provinces. Um, so, I mean, they're going to save substantial amounts of money. And so one hopes that, you know, uh, premiums would be reduced by uh, insurers. I mean, wh- whether, you know, whether Manulife is going to actually reduce premiums that are being paid is another question. Or are they just going to take the profit? Not quite clear. Right. I, I guess broadly, the argument against pharmacare has been the idea that it would it would uh, vacate a, a space already being used quite effectively for a lot of people uh, where where insurance is involved. I mean that that's been the ar- counter argument towards pharmacare broadly, not just for diabetes and contraception, but right across the board. That somehow when the government moves into the space, others move out, and you end up you end up with a weaker system, sort of a government funded weaker system. Um, I really would. Take issue with that, I guess. I mean, at the, sure. at the moment, we have, uh, you know, if, if you're a senior in, in most uh, provinces, you have access to government uh, health and government insurance for your um, pharmaceutical products. Um, I, I don't see how that's any harm to seniors who are taking advantage of that. I mean, if the idea is that they should be paying for you know, and, and purchasing private insurance, that probably does not work so well. I mean, th- right. this is kind of, if you think that um, pharmacare is a bad idea, you probably should think that, hey, the government should get out of insuring all healthcare, because pharmaceuticals are now a really critical part of our entire healthcare system. Right. I guess it often part of the argument that's put up a lot is around choice and so on. And, 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 and you know, those are the things that come up quite often. What are you looking for uh, in terms of next steps here? In, in, I mean, this is just the first step on what promises to be a long and, and bumpy journey. But what, what are you looking for next? I think uh, <laughs> if they can just get this off the ground, um, I would imagine it's going to take them quite a while to negotiate with the provinces. Um, and by the time they do, there'll probably be a new uh, government in place in Ottawa, at which point uh, I suspect that that new government might not be so favorable towards this program. Yeah. So the, the real issue is, can they make it happen fast enough so that people begin to get access to this uh, service, which you know, f- for many people would be really important? And then it gets harder hear, to reverse, oh, but right. expanding it's going to take a long time. Indeed, away from these just these two drugs. As a last, you know, we're going to hear a lot of politics around this. I think we're already hearing a lot of politics around this. What do you tell individual Canadians that about how they should approach this issue and how they should make sense of it, given the the politics that will surround it? I mean, I I I think that's fair to give it a chance. Um, you know, it's two products, and the government has been explicit about saying this is essentially just a pilot and that they want to see how it works. So I, I, I think that makes sense. Um, and, you know, people who have money and have, are well insured should just recognize that there are a lot of people in the country who are not taking the drugs that they should and not getting treated adequately. And that's bad for those people and bad for everyone else who has to pay taxes to pay for them to be, you know, treated in hospital. So let's give it a try. Aiden, uh, we'll see what happens. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. You are welcome. You have a good Friday evening. Talking pharmacare this half hour, of course, uh, the federal government yesterday introduced their pharmacare bill, long awaited, provided some details as well. Uh, It will... Cover some diabetes treatments and contraception to anyone with a health card. I mean, ultimately, that's what will happen if it's passed and approved by the provinces. Um, Mark Holland, the health ministry yesterday, said this is an important first step. Waking up in a country where every single woman has access to the contraception she needs to control her future is an absolutely critical part of having a just society. This is about health equity. It's also about affordability.
Now, the when in this is still up in the air. If Bill C-64 passes as it should, Holland will begin negotiating with the provinces and territories on a funding commitment that would cover the cost of providing those medications to people for free. Uh, The federal government also says it will establish a fund to support Canadian diabetics who need access to syringes, glucose test strips, and to manage their conditions but struggle to afford them. Joining me now with more on this is Laura Siron. She's president and CEO, or Siron rather, president and CEO of Diabetes Canada and a type 2 diabetes patient herself. Laura, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. Glad to be here. Tell me a bit about uh, who specifically will this help and what kind of stories are you hearing out there that would be indicative of the kind of people out there who who can really benefit from this? Yeah, we hear this a lot. In fact, I would say that we have a 1-800 line that you can call, Ben, and we get about 25,000 calls a year from people who live with diabetes. And one of the number one things is uh, affordability. Um, And certainly that's increased over the last couple of years uh, since COVID and with inflation, but people worried about, okay, my doctors said I should be on this medication, but it's expensive. And, And sometimes even if they have insurance, they can't afford the copay for the thing. And so, you know, I'm sort of covered, um, but not, or um, I'm a senior, I'm living on disability, I have to inject insulin. So now, and we get these scary calls, now I'm starting to um, use my syringes multiple times to save money on them. This is not a good thing, Ben. We, you should not be using syringes multiple times. So I would say uh, older people, people certainly from a socioeconomic standpoint, uh, you know, people that are making under $30,000, that kind of stuff. But there's also lots of uh, working families. Their child gets diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. They're told it would be best if they could have a glucose monitor and an insulin pump. Well, these things are expensive, right? And if you're a young family, you probably have a mortgage, you know, your kids are in programs, you're trying to do stuff and to be able to afford something like that. And people will talk about the plan being for medications, which it is, but also they announced, which I'm thrilled about, a fund for devices too. Because when you live with diabetes, the devices, I you can't see, but I'm pointing to my arm. I wear a right. continuous glucose monitor, little patch that goes on my arm. Yeah, we see those a lot. Oh. It, it connects to your cell phone, right? Is that right? It sort of keeps exactly. right. Yeah. Exactly. And it allows me in the old days, you had to prick your finger and take your blood and put it on a strip. And we still hear people, lots of people are doing that. The monitors aren't cheap. Um, and, uh, you know, we hear people, they split the strips in half. So they can try to use them more. We get calls from people who used to be covered and then they change jobs or and now they don't have the coverage or they lost their job and they were used to this medication. And so all of those things uh, we hear with a lot of frequency and it breaks my heart. I I feel very privileged that I uh, my you know, my insurance covers my monitor. It covers I myself am on oral medications. Other people with diabetes type 2 and, of course, type 1 are on insulin. So uh, what the government announced is uh, starting to talk about covering insulins, covering the oral medications. Of course, it's not a comprehensive list yet, but we're celebrating, Ben, because this is the first day where there is now a commitment from this government um, and the federal government at large to then say, this is what we want to do. We want to focus on those 4 million people who live with diabetes and make sure that, that they have the right coverage. So it's it's a big day. And, and people might say, well, why is a monitor important to you, Laura? Why are the medications? Because with diabetes, the healthier you can stay for longer, the less your complications out the other end. So for me, as someone with diabetes, for example, there are five main complications and all of them are scary to me, Ben. So for example, right. I'm at great risk of sight loss. I'm at great risk of limb amputation. I'm at greater risk of eventually having kidney failure, of heart attacks and strokes. Well, the more I can keep my blood sugar managed now, and the monitor helps me do that, my oral medication helps me do that, the less like I reduce my risk of those things. So also from the government point of view, it's smart because- It's an investment, right? I mean, pay pay, pay up front and save money in the healthcare system, save money and space in the healthcare system in the future. And have healthier people that live Mm -hmm. in Canada and can, you know, enjoy their quality of life and go about doing things. They're, you know, they they aren't blind, they aren't on dialysis. So it's a money thing. And it's also for those of us who live with diabetes, it's a quality of life. It's okay if we can manage this now, 
then um, we'll have a better quality of life and we will spend less time in the hospital right. and save some money. In any potential pitfalls at all? I mean, every time there's always sort of the law of unintended consequences. I know there's been some noise made about, you know, existing such as yours, you have existing coverage and that might yeah. be diluted if, if the government steps in with that first dollar, so to speak. But uh, do you have any concerns? I guess the devil will be in the details a little bit, but any concerns at all on that front? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, as you said, I, I think we look forward to seeing more details because it is important that people don't lose what they already have. Uh, because the choice of what medication you're on, what combos of medication, whether a device is a pump right for you, all of that sort of stuff, that's a very independent, like one size does not fit all. Right. And that's a very uh, important independent conversation that each person with diabetes has with their healthcare provider. So you wouldn't want to see this plan get in the way of that. You wouldn't want to see this plan say, well, I have to put you on this. But today is not a day to think about that. I think today is a day to think about that if you haven't had access, there's a possibility that you will now. Now, again, that also, there now have to be consultations. I mean, one of the things that we'll keep a close eye on because we're here to serve people with diabetes is, you know, how long will this take? It will very likely, I think, depend on what province you live in and what kind of agreements they're able to get with each of the provinces. So the, you know, the quicker they can start having those conversations and the more they can start saying, okay, well, you already cover this and now this can do that. Um, so, you know, if I were able to sit across from the minister today and say when, you know, obviously as soon as possible is the answer for all of those of us who live with diabetes. But I'm, you know, hoping 12, 18, 24 months people could start, you know, being able to take their prescription and now not think, can I do this or do I have to, you know, go to the grocery store? You know, it's like, no, you can take this, get it filled and go to the grocery store and in fact, afford the food. I mean, with diabetes, it's sometimes you feel like you're getting it from all sides, Ben, because your doctor's like, now make sure you eat healthier, tech more expensive, and take this medication, tech more expensive, and have this device, you know, and, and yeah. people have to make choices, right? And so um, if this can reduce that stress, I, I think it's huge. Laura, I'll let you celebrate the announcement. We'll talk about the details as we start to learn them. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. We're talking about the passing of Brian Mulroney, of course, yesterday at the age of 84, Canada's 18th Prime Minister. There's been just all kinds of reaction and stories being shared. Uh, I mean, the tributes, obviously, about his political career, the influence that he had, whether it be free trade or uh, his work in trying to end apartheid and so on, you know, those are part of his legacy. What's really interested me in many ways is the stories, just the personal stories, the stories about how people's memories of their encounters with Brian Mulroney, their phone calls from Brian Mulroney. But first, we learned a little bit more today about uh, what may happen uh, surrounding his funeral. There will be a state funeral. The Prime Minister was in Sudbury earlier today, and he spoke of the plans of the making to honour the 84-year-old, of course, uh, who died yesterday in Florida, surrounded by his family. I can confirm that obviously there will be a full state funeral for the former Prime Minister. Uh, we're working with the family closely to ensure that all of their uh, wishes are uh, are respected and that it be uh, the right and fitting uh, tribute to him. We will uh, be sharing uh, more details, of course, uh, in coming moments. Trudeau also told reporters there that there will be opportunities for Canadians to share their tributes to the former PM in the coming weeks. Uh, Flags are at half-staff at federal buildings across the country tonight. They'll remain that way until sunset on the day of the former Prime Minister's state funeral. And as mentioned, the tributes and stories about Brian Mulroney continue to be shared today right across the political spectrum and beyond. To give you an idea just of the breadth of 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 his of the people he touched i'll start with people from different political parties although the first two are from somewhat similar parties at this point un ambassador and former ndp premier of ontario bob ray wrote today when my brother died brian mulroney was the first political leader to call as he was when i was elected premier in 1990 when i was defeated and at so many other moments he was my friend despite our differences liberal mp montreal mp anthony housefather uh as wrote this today, as politicians were grappling with the war in Gaza, he says, in December 2023, I was going through a pretty stressful time, and Brian Mulroney took the time to call me and encourage me. That was the kind of man he was. He cared about people, a true gentleman. Mulroney's former cabinet colleague, Walter McLean, writes, 
when my wife Barbara was in the hospital in the last year to 18 months, she got a call from Mulroney saying he was thinking about her and wishing her well. He was a great connector, both for the country and individuals. Former Toronto Star reporter Jim Coyle writes of how Brian Mulroney would offer, often offer support to those trying to beat alcoholism. He had stopped drinking back in 1980, Mulroney that is. The stories were many among the problem drinkers of Ottawa, and Lord knows there were enough of us in his day, of Mulroney calling people, friend and foe alike, with encouragement if he heard they were in trouble. In this realm, he bore no grudges. And there are countless stories like that being shared today, from reporters to politicians to politicians on right across the spectrum. Um, others as well, people who had just bumped into him, people who had worked for him, worked with him, young, old. Um, this was a trait that he carried through his entire public life, uh, was this ability to sort of reach out to people, to connect. And it's a pretty amazing ability. And I think that's why he's being remembered with so much fondness uh, over the past 24 hours. It wasn't just, just what he, the impact that he had on the country, uh, whether you liked what his policies or not. It was the impact that he had on so many people. And that uh, oftentimes, regardless of how successful you've been in, in any career, politics and otherwise, uh, because politics can be a fickle, fickle game, as we well know, his ability to reach out to people, that's what's shining out today that's what's been shining out over the last shining over the last 24 hours believe it or not of course Mulroney himself hinted at that ability of his to connect and how he cherished making those connections in his resignation speech more than 30 years ago and the time has also come to thank you to say good night and au revoir to all of you i say in the words of yeats think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say my glory was that I had such friends. I mean, it's a poem, but it's interesting he would mention the, the notion of friendship in his farewell speech. My next guest was one of those who connected with the former prime minister many, many times. First, as a teenager growing up in Ottawa, he would then enter Mulroney's government circles, working for Defence Minister Perrin Beattie at the time. It was a relationship that continued after he entered politics himself, first as an MPP and as a cabinet minister in Ontario under Mike Harris, and then as an MP and cabinet minister again under Stephen Harper. John Baird, longtime Ottawa area MLA and MP uh, and a former federal foreign affairs minister joins me now. John, thank you so much for your time. Great to be with you. It's amazing to look back at, uh, I mean, we're, we're roughly the same age, and, and just how influential the Mulroney era was in our lifetimes, especially politically growing up in your, teen, in your teens and so on. There is a great story about you putting up a Mulroney poster in your high school civics class. So you were a fan uh, early on. Yeah, I first met uh, Brian Mulroney when I was 15 years old. Uh, so I sort of looked up to him sort of as a political idol when you're a, a star-eyed uh, you know, student activist. And then I worked in his government as a, as a political aide. And then uh, we became uh, friends and he became a mentor to me when I was a federal minister. And then we've worked together in the private sector for the last uh, nine years. So uh, it's a real loss for incredible, me. It's a real yeah. loss for the country. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, incredible to think that, you're, that your ties go back 40 years, right? That, that, that he's been part of your life for four decades. It's, it really is remarkable. And to think of uh, the huge and consequential things he did for Canada. I mean, everyone's talking about, uh, you know, free trade or tax reform or what he did on the international stage. We forget he privatized more Crown corporations than Margaret Thatcher did. People forget that Canadian National, Air Canada, these used to be state-owned enterprises. And he uh, very aggressively, and these companies are demonstrably better companies than they were uh, when uh, before he privatized them. And you think of, you know, people, no one's talking about this thing, these things. He tripled the number of women in the federal cabinet on his first day in office. Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau had two women, health and welfare. Uh, health and social services were the two jobs, uh, sort of a pink ghetto. He brought in uh, six women into his cabinet. One would eventually become uh, foreign affairs minister and, and uh, others would play very senior roles. You know, there was a big debate on whether RCMP officers who were Sikh would be allowed to wear turbans. And he was very courageous uh, at, uh, you know, staring down those people who uh, were not as progressive. You know, he ended the ban on gays in the military. Uh, you know, decades before they did it in the United States. So this, th there's so many, there's so many transformational things he did uh, for our country. 
having been in politics as long as you were and, and having had to make many of those same sorts of calls on, on controversial and often heated debates, what do you think it was about, about Brian Mulroney? How did he view an issue that allowed him to sort of make a decision about what he believed was right? Because he was really he really did follow the courage of his convictions on things that were could be incredibly unpopular. And yet he would do it anyway because he had taken a decision that he thought was the was the correct one. What do you think? that process looked like? Because you would have seen it up close for so long. I think long. he was just comfortable in his own skin. Right. Uh, he didn't want to, he, uh, he once said to me, John, I never didn't want to get, didn't want to become prime minister so I could move the furniture around. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to be, uh, to be consequential. And he stared down this, this terrible anti-Americanism uh, that existed in a large part of the Canadian electorate. Uh, one of the things he taught me when I was foreign minister is personal relationships are everything to the be all and end all. And it's not so that you can make a friend and have fun, so that you can make a friend and accomplish things for Canada. And uh, I mean, those relationships with Reagan and Bush, uh, it's, I, I pity all the prime ministers that have followed him because no one has even come close uh, to, uh, to having the, the type of relationship where he would be asked to, uh, you know, to eulogize them at both of their funerals. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, I think it's, it's interesting we look back at that time. I know I think there's a story. I think it's on Wikipedia, John, where, where I think you were arrested for trespassing for, involving free trade in the 88 election. Uh, you felt very passionately about this. And it reminded me of a time when what Brian Mulroney had Canadians arguing and thinking about were very substantive things, our views towards America, our views towards free trade, whether Canada could compete on the world stage. Those were heady topics uh, for those of us who grew up at the time. Yeah, these were big, bold issues, and he was, you know, he was not he was not the chairman of the Conservative Party. He was not the president of the Conservative Party. He was the leader of the Conservative Party, uh, and he led. Yeah, absolutely. Any memories? I mean, when you got into politics, um, was it was there a quick? I mean, you were you of course served in in, in Mike Harris's government. Was your relationship with Brian Mulroney? Did you reach out to him quite quickly for advice on things like this? Yeah, when I he, when uh, I became president of the Treasury Board. Uh, I went and uh, met with him in Montreal. He was very generous with his time. Uh, when I was Minister of the Environment, I got a lot of uh, very good advice uh, from him. He, of course, had the uh, Acid Rain Accord, which was huge. That problem has disappeared, so no one remembers how uh, how challenging it was. And he went out on a limb very far when Reagan was president and didn't get anywhere. Uh, but he wasn't afraid to go on a limb and afraid to fail. But then he closed the deal with uh, President George H.W. Bush. Uh, he did the Montreal Protocol, uh, which uh, has basically virtually eliminated the um, the issue of uh, uh, the thinning of the ozone layer. Right, he CFCs, yeah. came back on the uh, 20th anniversary. We hosted a dinner for him at Foreign Affairs, and he gave uh, the keynote speech at the 20th anniversary conference in Montreal. And Canada actually led the way to uh, to accelerate the phase out of uh, CHC. So uh, that's the, the the kind of leadership that he did was like following 20 years later. Uh, you know, he uh, he fundamentally uh, uh, changed the uh, changed the whole future of the country, particularly within the Conservative Party. We didn't debate anymore about free trade, so we were able to get free trade with the European Union, free trade with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, with South Korea and Latin America. Uh, even where there would have been some really consequential fights uh, in parts of the country, uh, that uh, that issue was settled. And his his greatest accomplishment, uh, I think, was probably getting the Liberal Party and the Liberal leader to be so supportive of NAFTA and uh, even bringing him in, putting him in the, in the chairman's seat at the cabinet table to advise the government. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about your time as environment minister and, and sort of the, the conservative approach to environment, because it's been, been one, of course, that, that others have used as a cudgel, cudgel against the party. And it was interesting to see when uh, when Mr. Mulroney was, was named as the greenest prime minister, because it, it was a reminder that there are there's not just one way to approach this, right? Yeah, and he um, and when I was there, he uh, he encouraged you to be bold. So, you know, we expanded the uh, protected areas in Canada by 30 percent in two years. Um, when I went to my first climate change, UN climate change conference, he said, bring some advisors. I said, well, what kind of people should I bring? And uh, he said, uh, um, uh, Pierre-Marc Johnson, the former Premier of Quebec, who's a very well-respected environmentalist in Quebec. Uh, Pierre came, we became friends. He suggested one woman who I didn't know. Uh, her name uh, was Mary Simon. And now right. she's Governor General. And another name he mentioned was Liz Dowdswell, uh, who was head, former head of the United Nations Environmental Program. She just stepped down as uh, Lieutenant Governor. So he was uh, always great as a mentor and great with the advice. And uh, more often than not, I took it. 
Former Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird is with us this half hour. We're talking about the life and legacy of Brian Mulroney. Uh, John, you and I used to spend time together sometimes in Kiev back uh, back in 1990, about a decade ago now. Um, you know, it was interesting to look at at the legacy of Brian Mulroney as an early recognizer of the independence of those of, of the former Soviet bloc uh, countries as still resonating even when you were there uh, in 20 years later. He was he was uh, the right man at the right time, a very consequential time. He uh, people like uh, Brian Mulroney, like Margaret Thatcher, like Ronald Reagan, they took a fundamental shift away from the conventional foreign policy, which would be to contain communism. Rather, they wanted to overcome it and defeat it. Uh, and uh, he was put on uh, uh, in uh, in the prime minister's office uh, at a at a critical time with critical allies and. You know, whether it's, uh, you know, Canada was the first Western country to recognize the independence of Ukraine, whether there was the uh, famine uh, in Ethiopia in the early days of his uh, premiership. Uh, you know, uh, I met Nelson Mandela once, and, the, and the, the first thing he said when he found out I was uh, from Canada was, how is my friend Brian? Uh-huh. Uh, um, and he really challenged West, the Western uh, Western thinking and wasn't afraid to even take on his uh, uh, his friends. And history history judges him very well in uh, in that regard. And I'm not even uh, yeah, I could go on and on and on sure. uh, yeah. about the, uh, about uh, his accomplishments. He was the first real you know mega foreign policy uh, prime minister. He uh, he just played at such a at such a different level and constructively. Canada had a bad reputation on the world stage. Uh, his predecessor really only focused on uh, uh, on uh, on Cuba and other uh, nefarious uh, nefarious relationships, where uh, Brian really was able to really cement partnerships uh, with our allies and take us to a different level. Yeah, uh, it's it's interesting. I mean, and and you too. I mean, in your career uh, in in politics, you too had. Uh, positions that would have been Mulroney-esque, so to speak, that would have, some would have seen as a contradiction. I mean, there were many things that you stood up for in your time in politics that reminded one that you can be, that you don't have to be labeled one way all the time. People would have disagreed with you, obviously, as one does, um, but that you can stand by the courage of your convictions and still wear your party colors with pride. Absolutely. and But it, with him, it was leadership, not followership. Um, Mrs. Thatcher once said that if she, when she went out of office, she wanted to start up a business, rent a spine. Well, Brian Mulroney didn't need to rent a spine. He had a he had a, a strong one. Yeah, indeed. Any last thoughts? Just a, a memories that, that that come up of time that you spent with him. Things that stand out now. That you, remember, yeah. you would uh, you would uh, that someone would come into my office and say he's on the phone, <laughs> and you don't know is this a good call or a bad call? Because when he uh, he would sometimes call when he had uh, good advice from you, and he'd sometimes call with uh, uh, a rather uh, a, a rather sometimes critical assessment and with advice on how to change correct course. Uh, but it was uh, it was always a welcome call. The one thing that I think the last thing I'd say is is that here was a guy who could negotiate the Meech Lake Accord, and the next morning both of the opposition parties stood up in the House of Commons and endorsed it. I just can't conceive of a consequential major public policy issue uh, where that would happen. Uh, the fact that he could, uh, uh, you know, he offered John Turner uh, an appointment uh, as an ambassador uh, after he uh, stepped down as Liberal leader, he didn't take him up on it. He, uh, he created a position in Montreal for uh, Ed Broadbent uh, with respect to uh, foreign policy and, uh, and uh, human rights. He appointed Stephen Lewis as the uh, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations. So he's someone that could really work across uh, the aisle. He uh, had a very close relationship with uh, David Peterson, the Liberal Premier of Ontario, uh, which they collaborated on national unity issues. Uh, so I don't, I don't think we have such a different political reality today. I don't know whether it's social media or the competitive nature of our politics or just a different generation. John, Go thank ahead. you. Thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Great to be with you, Ben. Let's head to Alberta now. You may remember there was a pause, a very sudden and somewhat inexplicable pause put on wind and solar development in Alberta. It came to an end today. Uh, A little earlier this week, the provincial government there laid out uh, some new rules to guide future wind and solar development in Alberta. Uh, The Premier Daniel Smith um, and Utility Affordability and Utilities Minister Nathan Newdorf announced the changes on Wednesday. They include a ban on new wind projects located within 35-kilometer buffer zones around protected areas and other, quote, pristine viewscapes designated by the province. Other proposed developments located are, um, the buffer zone is one of them, and really it's all about the visual impact of these projects before approval. Have a listen to the Premier. 
Albertans have been vocal that they don't want large-scale developments to interfere with our province's most beautiful natural features. You cannot build wind turbines the size of the Calgary Tower in front of a UNESCO World Heritage Site or on Nose Hill or in your neighbor's backyard. Interesting. I don't think anyone was proposing to do that, but there you have it. There's some of the reasons. Uh, The province has also said that the Alberta Utilities Commission will follow an agriculture-first approach when evaluating proposed renewables development on agricultural lands, Uh, and the developers will also be responsible for reclamation costs. Uh, Here again, and as always, there is this idea somehow out there that, uh, you know, I mean, there's a certain hostility to the renewable industry if you listen closely to what the Premier has to say. But we must be responsible when it comes to approving applications. Renewables have a place in our energy mix, but the fact remains that they are intermittent and unreliable. They are not the silver bullet for Alberta's electricity needs, and they are not the silver bullet of electricity affordability. Yeah, and, and nor were, no were they supposed to be. I mean, and, and by the way, Albertans, you pay more for electricity than any of the rest of us. I know there are reasons for that, by the way. Um, here's the catch, though. Before the provincial government sprung this sudden moratorium last August on renewable energy product, projects over a megawatt in size, Alberta actually accounted for 92%, 92% of Canada's new solar and wind capacity. That is absolutely massive. You picture Alberta being not only a fossil fuel energy giant, but a renewable energy giant at the same time. I think both are possible. Certainly, Texas has gone that way. Um, and, and over the years, I mean, Alberta hasn't exactly taken a hard line on resource development or free enterprise. So, you know, the taxpayers there have been on the hook for, or many of us have been on the hook for tens of thousands of orphaned wells, uh, even the most conservative estimates go by. So it's int- I was interested in why this, why this focus on renewables and this slightly hostile focus on renewables when it looked from the outside at least like the industry was doing well and it could be part no one's no one says that windmills and solar are going to take over everything in the immediate future obviously you need uh, an electricity grid or you need power generation that can accommodate demand and can accommodate shifting demand um, over the years and, and obviously wind and solar are not going to take over those roles instantly right but why would you kind of drop the hammer on it in this way. Um, So I was curious to see that at the end of the seven-month moratorium, the mood within the renewable industry in Alberta isn't all that optimistic. In fact, apparently investors are looking elsewhere to jurisdictions with more predictable rules and regulations. One of them is Dan Balaban. He's CEO of Greengate Power, and he joins me now. Dan, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. I guess just from your shoes, for for listeners who mightn't be as as intimately familiar with all that's happened in the renewable space in the last uh, seven, eight months or so in Alberta, uh, what kind of impact did that moratorium have on your operations and on investment in renewables in Alberta broadly? First off, I'd say the, the moratorium, which was uh, recently lifted, um, was unnecessary in the first place. And uh, really what I think uh, has come out of it is ultimately going to result in a slowdown uh, in the growth of the industry going forward. And, um, you know, Alberta ultimately won't realize its full uh, renewable energy potential, despite the fact uh, that we've been leading the country and have been one of the leading destinations in North America uh, for renewables investment uh, for the last several years. So it's disappointing. Yeah, it's been a real success story for those who, again, for those who might not know, Alberta has been a real powerhouse when it's come to renewables over the past uh, several years. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a modern miracle that, uh, you know, Alberta, the hard oil country, has been uh, leading the country in renewables growth over the last uh, number of years. But it's really uh, a result of a number of factors. You know, it's well known that we've got phenomenal oil and gas resources, but we also have phenomenal renewable energy resources. We have some of the best onshore wind in North America. Uh, we're the sunshine state of the north. Our solar resource in Alberta is as good as the solar resource in Florida for the purposes of producing electricity from the sun. So we've got some natural advantages there. And uh, we've got a market that has been designed uh, in such a way that it facilitates uh, private investment, uh, you know, corporate uh, deals with companies like Amazon and Microsoft who are now buying power from uh, Alberta projects uh, directly under long-term contract. You know, so a lot of really attractive things uh, that were a long time uh, in the making that finally came to fruition over the last several years. So, you know, it's uh, disappointing that the the province doesn't seem to be uh, encouraging that continued growth in the same way. Yeah, not to mention all the expertise, right? I mean, I think a lot of people in the renewables business actually came from from the oil and gas business. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to diversify the economy. You know, renewable energy is a, is a business, is an industry that's been driving tremendous amount of investment in the province over the last several years, billions of dollars in new projects um, that have been built, thousands of jobs uh, that have been created and, uh, you know, ultimately creating, uh, you know, another source uh, of energy for us to use in the mix, a clean source of energy. Uh, yeah, lots of, uh, you know, lots of good news that I think has come out of the industry. Uh, so the pause has been lifted. I think it's as of March first, right? So the pause has been lifted, but some new some new sort of guidelines came into place that we heard this week. Uh, what did you make of them? I mean, I'm not in your business, but they struck me as being vague at best. You know, well, at least the you know the government uh, stuck to their timeline and did uh, really you know lift the moratorium at the end of this month, like they said they would. But um, you know, ultimately, what came out of it is a set of rules that I think is going to result in the industry slowing down. And it's really driven, I think, by you know two things that have come out of it. Uh, there's going to be a whole bunch of land in Alberta that um, appears to be excluded from new renewable energy development. Uh, and the second thing is, uh, you know, there's still some uncertainty around the rules and appears to be uh, some subjectivity. Uh, and as a result, I think that has the potential to extend, uh, you know, permitting timelines as well. So I think you're going to see. Um, you know, fewer projects in the medium and long term. And, uh, you know, those will take longer to come to fruition. Yeah, I wasn't quite clear what what was meant by pristine viewscapes, right? I mean, those are some of the, I, I guess that's the kind of language that drives uncertainty and uncertainty is always, can always be the enemy of investment, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, um, you know, taking a uh, half a step back, I, I have no issue, fundamental issue with uh, the items that were reviewed as part of this. Right. Uh, what I have issue with is I believe a moratorium was unnecessary and extreme. It was like taking a jackhammer to a nail. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the, the industry could have continued uh, developing concurrent with the moratorium. But the things that were looked at in the moratorium, like the uh, um, uh, renewables on uh, agricultural land, uh, impacts on potential viewscapes, uh, the need to post, uh, you know, reclamation uh, security potentially opening up uh, renewables development on crown land. Like these are all things that we should be talking about and all things that should be, uh, you know, constantly reviewed in the context of a fast growing industry. Okay. So uh, all that, but what right. came out of it, what came out of it is I think a set of restrictions to address those issues that are more restrictive than they ought to be. Dan Balaban is the CEO of Greengate Hour. We're talking about renewable energy development in Alberta uh, and a moratorium that was lifted on March the 1st, as was anticipated. Uh, but some new guidelines now put into place that still need to, uh, the details still need to be hammered out in many ways that Dan worries will continue to slow. It's sort of like a, a soft moratorium, as how one uh, commentator put it yesterday, that it continues a bit of the uncertainty around investing in renewables in Alberta. So, it, I mean, it... Is your impression here, and I'm, I, I don't know this to be a fact, but is your impression that there's ideology involved here that sort of, uh, that in some senses the provincial government is is sort of picking favorites in all this or, or, or picking on the renewable industry in a way that it's never really tackled the oil and gas industry in the past? Well, I think ultimately uh, what's going on is a symptom of a much larger issue. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really the politics of division that seem to be dominating every issue, uh, every major issue globally. Um, here in Canada, energy is one of the one of the you know most significant issues, particularly in Alberta, and um, so there's a lot of um, lot going on around it. And really, what's happening is uh, you have the federal government trying to push the provinces towards a very aggressive net zero grid by 2035 goal, and here in Alberta, the provincial government is pushing back very hard against that goal. And I believe ultimately uh, what's happened is you have the renewable energy industry being caught in the crossfire. And um, I really believe that the fight does not serve any of us. What we really need to be doing is working on the solutions that are going to get us to a clean, affordable and reliable energy system uh, in the future. Yeah, because my impression always was within the renewable industry in, in Alberta, and we touched on this a bit earlier, because of all the expertise that's come out of the oil and gas industry into the renewables industry, that most in the almost everyone in the re renewables industry in Alberta is keenly aware of what the politics in Alberta are all about, what and how these two systems, whether it be fossil fuels and renewables, complement each other. Yeah, well, I think it's been uh, 
framed, unfortunately, in a very adversarial way. It's been framed as oil and gas versus renewables. When it's an and, we can be developing our oil and gas and our renewable energy resources. You know, um, Canada is blessed with uh, you know tremendous natural resources across the country. Uh, here in Alberta, we've got a lot of uh, oil and gas. We've got phenomenal uh, renewable energy resources. We have growing energy demands, uh, particularly in the electricity sector, driven by growing economic activity, growing population, and growing uses for electricity, like uh, the electrification of our economy, electric vehicles, uh, you know, AI. Um, so there's there's lots of need for uh, for more uh, electricity, and uh, we should be uh, pursuing all sources of it. And I don't um, see uh, any reason to um, you know to hamper the growth of uh, you know one part of that. Yeah, I mean, I just with the recent there were some serious issues around around uh, electricity and power and availability not that long ago over the winter in Alberta, and it, it was sort of the characterization as the renewable sector as being unru- unru- unreliable, which of course didn't turn out to be the case in that particular incident. But you're right, the politicization of it is has has certainly left uh, your industry in Alberta in kind of a tough spot, uh, considering what a success it had been for so long under the previous UCP government uh, to top it all off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, under the uh, under the under the Kenny government, um, you know, they largely were hands off on the electricity sector. And, uh, you know, during that period of time, Alberta experienced the greatest boom in renewable energy that, uh, you know, we've seen in our history. And, uh, you know, like I said, top destination in Canada, one of the top destinations in North America, a modern miracle in the heart of oil country. Uh, what a great way to diversify our economy. We should be encouraging that. And um, yeah, I think, um, you know, unfortunately, this, uh, you know, this ideology that seems to be pervasive around the world that, uh, you know, we need to be taking one view or another on every issue and ignoring the solutions, which are almost always in the middle, including on this in energy in Canada. How optimistic are, are you that this may be something of a blip then, that this is something, this is politics and eventually behind the scenes, there's a recognition of of just how valuable the re- renewables industries become to Alberta and could and will be in the future. Uh, how optimistic are you that that will, that the middle will find its way in all this? Well, I mean, it all starts with us individually, right? So, um, you know, the way, you know, the way we, we interact with each other on, uh, on issues, the way we uh, interact with social media and the sort of uh, information that's consuming, that's forming our ideas. Uh, so, you know, a lot of it's uh, up to us. But, you know, at the moment, uh, it seems like this, you know, uh, populist approach to politics is dominating, uh, you know, almost every issue. Um, so, you know, yeah. we need to, I think, change the way we're, we, you know, we're viewing this this collectively. Yeah. And, and just for you, I mean, in terms of, of your your company and, and what you're hearing from others who would like to invest in Alberta, because as you mentioned, I mean, it, it, the, the resources are there, the sunshine is there, the wind is there to be harnessed, right? What what are you hearing from others, yourself and others in the industry, just about comfort levels with making, because these are investments that need to be made. Oftentimes, money has to be put down up front uh, with the expectation that it will pay off in the future. What's the What's the mood surrounding that right now? Well, I can speak for my own company. So, you know, over the last 17 years, we've uh, been one of the most active developers of renewable energy projects uh, in the country. We developed, um, you know, a number of projects, including the largest uh, solar project uh, in the country right here uh, in Alberta. You know, so we're really proud of, uh, you know, the legacy that we've left and the success that we've had to date. Uh, But at the moment, we're not pursuing any new uh, renewable energy projects uh, in Alberta. We were uh, have been waiting to see how things unfold. You know, these rules have just been announced. Uh, we're going to digest them. But, um, you know, upon initial review, they don't seem to be positive. You know, there's a lot of uh, places uh, in Canada where uh, renewable energy is being encouraged. Uh, you know, uh, other provinces uh, south of the border, uh, across the world. And uh, the reality is Alberta has been a great place to invest. I'm an Albertan. I love Alberta. But it's not the only place to invest. Dan, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ben. 